This week on Useful to God, Dr. James Spencer will answer the question, how are we hindered from being useful to God today? James, I've said it before, this is like a short course on obstacles, big and small. <laughs> in the environment we occupy today and the ways certain and the ways certain conventions and practices prime us to keep God at the margins of our lives, how do we buck the trend? Well, I think we have to understand the trends first before we learn how to buck them. And so uh, one of the places that I go to look for trends is, uh, you know, some of my scholarly friends, I suppose we could call that. I've never actually met this gentleman, but um, having read his work, I find it to be really helpful and interesting. And so there's a book written by Mark Knoll. It's called Jesus Christ and the Life of the Mind. And in it, he talks about uh, barriers to productive thought within evangelicalism. And uh, he outlines three different barriers. One is immediatism. Uh, the other, uh, second one is populism. And the third is anti-traditionalism. And so what he generally means by immediatism is that when we're facing a problem or uh, some difficulty in life, we want it to be solved. And we generally want it to be solved pretty perfectly right now. Like there's, there's a crisis we need to put an end to this crisis so that life can get back to working order and there can be status quo restored. And it doesn't really matter uh, what the solution is. Often, we just want it to be done right at this very minute. And so we're very reactive is his analysis. And I would tend to agree. We do tend to be fairly reactive. We don't really take those steps back that often we need to. We're very immediate in our responses and we tend to get primed and sort of frustrated or angry about the things that are going on around us, as opposed to taking a step back, recognizing that God is in control and um, that we actually have the time as members of an unshakable kingdom. That's uh, Hebrews 12. Um, we, we should be grateful that we are members of an unshakable kingdom or a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And because we're members of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we've got time on our hands. And so whenever we hit these problems, whenever we face the immediatism of the day, whenever we're sort of begin to be primed or or um, tempted to solve a, a problem in an immediate way without really taking the time to think about it, what we need to remember is that as members of an unshakable kingdom, the church isn't going anywhere. The kingdom of God isn't going anywhere. And that all of these things around us that appear to be, you know, detrimental to society may very well be detrimental to society. That doesn't mean that we have to react to them in the moment at this second and get them solved perfectly in the moment. So part of what we need to do is just sort of take a pause, step back and try to create the space to reflect, to think, and to really get at the, uh, the Holy Spirit's promptings. So one of the things that I, I like to say is, you know, we just need to create the space that demonstrates our conviction that we believe we need to hear from the Holy Spirit in order to move forward in a faithful manner. So immediatism is that sort of tendency for us to act very quickly and really to act to get things perfect right now. And what I would say is we just need to learn to take a step back, not to react, but to analyze, to think, to pray, to discern, and to be prompted by the Holy Spirit before we do anything. Um, the second one is populism. And populism is a fun one. Um, we generally 
this is I'll summarize it like this and say, um, we generally think that the person who has the most followers is the most right. And um, in other words, you know, as the crowd goes, so go we. And that's a it's a hard way to think um, because, uh, you know, Jesus started with 12 disciples. Um, he was not the biggest thing in town for for most of his life and ministry, certainly not toward the end. Uh, once he hit that time near the crucifixion, um, he didn't really have many people around him. And so if we're looking at who's popular, uh, Jesus wasn't that popular in the scheme of things. And so um, wisdom, popular and being wise are two separate things. It's not that they can't go together. It's that they don't always come together. And so we have to watch out that we are not just following the trends because everybody else is following the trends. Part of what we need to do is recognize that, listen, even though it's popular, even though there's a lot of people doing this, it's it's our individual and communal discernment, often on a small scale, that gives us the best wisdom, best and wisest way forward. And so we've got to really consider not only is it right what everyone else is doing, which is a totally legitimate question, but also is it right for us to do that in our particular context. So often what I see is, you know, um, broad based sort of ideas that sort of go out there um, via the airwaves, like we're on radio right now, um, you know, and, and it it is okay, right? I mean, you know, giving out these sort of broad ideas and, and discussing these matters is important. But what I would encourage listeners to do is not to think that just because it's on the radio, it's right. And certainly not just because it's on the radio, that it's right for them in their community at a particular time. And so part of being wise and really understanding how to navigate our culture is recognizing we have to do the right thing at the right time for the right motivation. And that is a very contextual sort of analysis to do. The last thing that Noel mentions is anti-traditionalism. And basically here, what he's what he's saying is that um, we tend to throw out what's old and and we opt into what's new. And it doesn't really matter how uh, good the old stuff is. It really only matters that there's new stuff. And so we have a tendency to skip over some of the really hard won ideas from the past and just to ignore them in order to get you know, into the trends of the moment of today. And he thinks that that is a a very dangerous way to think, as do I. It's not that I always think the answers are found in the past, but I think that we are foolish and foolhardy if we aren't digging into the past to really understand the difficulties that previous groups of Christians faced and what sort of thinking they did as they faced those issues. Well, isn't that akin to ignoring history uh, and, uh, and 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 revising it that way too? It's very much that way, and it, it's you know I think that even as we look, you know, uh, D. L. Moody is a great example. D. L. Moody lived through the Civil War. He lived through um, Reconstruction. He lived through segregation. Um, he did not get everything right, but we'd be fools not to look back at his life and ask ourselves, what could we learn from this individual? who navigated some extremely complex situations in his lifetime and still seems to be to seems to have been powerfully used by God what can we learn from his situation
And so we've got to sort of do the work of sifting that out. I'm not calling us to venerate, um, you know, the heroes of Christian past or something like that, but to really acknowledge and understand how God uses people, what they did right, what they did wrong, how they live faithfully. Those are all historical questions that I think are really important and, uh, and can come out as we really think about the positions they took, why they took them, what we might find to be patterns and parallels that we could implement in our day. Yeah, um, I, I want to uh, switch a little bit to ethics and, and morality. Um, and are. are we suffering a loss, or are we suffering loss of a sense of moral responsibility, even within the, the body of Christ right now? Yes, this is an interesting question. So here's what I, here's what I would say. I, I, I don't know that I see it as a loss of moral responsibility, even within the body of Christ. My concern is a little deeper than that. Um, I, I think that, um, number one, there was a, a at least a golden age, let's call it, or a perceived golden age, in which the Judeo-Christian ethic was generally accepted by a large group of Americans in the United States. And that Judeo-Christian ethic allowed for moral and ethical guardrails that I think everybody accepted or a large proportion of people accepted. And so there was a coordination of, of morality, let's say, where everybody sort of agreed or the enough, a sufficient number, a critical mass of people actually agreed on what was moral and what was not moral. And yes, you always had those arguments along the side and you had bad actors and you had, you know, this and that. But as a broad general idea, there was sort of everybody, uh, a critical mass of people was getting their arm, were getting their arms around uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic as the uh, moral framework by which all of us would live. Uh, I think the church benefited from that to a certain degree, but I also think that it created some deficits in the church. Because the Judeo-Christian ethic, while, you know, sort of biblically adjacent, right, in other words, maybe rooted in the Ten Commandments, pulled out and abstracted a bit, um, it is very different than the sort of moral responsibility I think Christians are called to exercise as they follow Christ. In other words, I would not equate the Judeo-Christian ethic with um, what we see in the Great Commission, that we are to learn to observe all that Christ commanded. Those are... At the very least, I would say, I think in my most generous moment, what I would say is that uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic is a subset of all that Christ commanded, and that the church is called to something higher. And so as that Judeo-Christian ethic, or to the extent that that Judeo-Christian ethic coordinated society and the moral movement within it, I have this sense that Christians live down to the standard set by society, as opposed to living up to the standard set by Christ. And so as we fast forward into a situation where the Judeo-Christian ethic has to some large degree fallen out of vogue, now I think what we're in the process of is not so much that Christians are have sort of lost their moral way. I think what's happened is that we haven't done the hard work of learning what it really means to follow Christ, what it really means to observe all Christ commanded. And so we've got some rebuilding to do there. And uh, as the societal sort of um, underpinnings have been knocked out from under us, it appears that we're floundering. 
But I think that the church is resilient. I think that it will find its center. And I think that uh, at some level, this will actually be good for the church to lose that sort of broad societal, um, you know, sort of moral fence that we were living down to so that we can live up to the gospel. Well, and that gets us to the terrible simplification and a willingness to settle for weak Thai activism, as you describe. Uh, We are also suffering from an acute lack of counting the cost of our proposals for our health, our economics, our academics, and and labor. What can we learn from the books of, let's say, Nehemiah and, and Ezra and the stands that they took in that regard? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look back at uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're not going to allow people to have simple solutions. Um, what they're calling for is more of a radical turn back to the Lord. And and so they have in their, you know, in their rather lengthy speeches, they're, re, they're reinstituting the Torah, and not in sort of a rigid way, but they're really reminding Israel that this is who we are. We are a people who are to be disciplined by Torah. We are a people who are to live according to this law. We are a people who are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are a people who are to welcome the sojourners and the aliens among us. You know, we are a people who are to love God above all else. And so they're they're reinstituting these things that were very much lost um, even pre-exile. So Ezra and Nehemiah are, are speaking after the exile to uh, the uh, Jews who came out of the first Babylonian captivity and then um, Persian sort of occupation. And uh, and but even before they went into exile, you know, you saw the the nations which were divided at the time, um, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. These nations were sort of starting to crumble apart uh we could say morally, but really they weren't following the covenant stipulations. They weren't being faithful to God is probably the best way to put it. And so they fell apart. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are going to come back in and say, listen, we don't, we don't just get to, you know, put a bandaid on these things. This is radical life change. It's going to be complex. It's going to be difficult, but we're going to give you also some simple steps to start moving toward fixing our society and getting back into a sort of covenantal lifestyle where we can experience the blessings of God. We are so undisciplined in so many ways in in our culture. Uh, We play to our whims and fantasies and wants rather than what we really need. How do we engage in a renewed commitment to the discipline of discipleship? I, I talk to people about this a lot, and what I usually say is discipleship as a concept can seem really big and really daunting, right? And, and we have this sort of vision of us being Christ-like, and we often talk about it like that. And being Christ-like is sort of a, a, a difficult goal, right? Hey, be like Jesus. Um, and and it, it, it's unachievable for us in a lot of ways, right? And so what, what I usually counsel people to do is this. Uh, and it, it really is rooted in something D.L. Moody once said. He said, um, and I'm going to paraphrase here. But people often miss out on what God would like to do through them. They miss out on the blessings of Christian service because they're only looking to do great things and they're ignoring the small things. Let us be willing to do the small things. And I think that discipleship is about those little things. 
So if we think about it, Richard, like, you know, you and I have been uh, doing this radio program since uh, last November, November 2022. And, um, you know, our first couple of shows, um, we didn't know each other as well as we know each other now. Right. And so there is a there was a rigidity to what we were doing. Right. Where we're sort of feeling each other out. We're trying to get a good rapport going. Um, We're trying to learn each other a bit. And now, you know, months later, it's much more comfortable. Right. We sort of have a more intuitive sense about us, even in our conversations off the show. We have a really nice rapport and um, that's grown over time. And part of it is because we've just sort of done little things to make one another more comfortable in these conversations. Right. We've asked questions. We've listened to backstories. We've, you know, we've allowed each other, one another to ramble on about different topics and, and, you know, really listened and tried to understand each other's concerns and, and what we each care about. And those are things that have to be done in order to develop a friendship or a, a, you know, a collegial relationship. Those things have to be done. It's the same in marriage, right? You, you know, as we're vulnerable with our spouses, as we're vulnerable with our friends, we're going to uh, come to know them better. And the, it, it happens in a million little ways. And so I think if we are going to recommit to the discipline of discipleship, what we need to be doing is focusing on the little interactions and practices that we can do in our daily lives that are not easy per se, but that are manageable and within our grasp. We can actually do them. And so if it means, you know, saying to ourselves, okay, listen, I am never going to go to bed at night without having spent at least 10 minutes in the word of God. I'm never going to go to bed at night without at least saying one prayer and speaking with God about my day or, um, you know, uh, raising a request or offering him praise. You know, we set those, those lower bars and we just stick to them, right? Because it won't ever happen. These disciplines of discipleship won't happen without our activity. And so starting with small things and building on those small things, allowing God to show up for us. It, you know, I mean, you've heard me talk about Malachi 3.10 before. Um, Malachi 3.10 is where God tells the Israelites, listen, bring your tithes to the storehouses and see what I do. Test me. Be obedient and test what happens. Like trust that your obedience is the best way forward here. And I think that's what we need to do. We don't necessarily need to be as radical as bringing all our tithes to the storehouses, but we do have to test God through our obedience and little obediences every day. James, with a with a mental health crisis, addictions, and breaking the cyclical patterns of past generations, how do we get off the cycle and start the process by which we become useful to God so that we can begin to recognize the opportunities that only discipleship can provide. You know, I I think that this, and, and I'll speak to it, I, you know, I used to be a personal trainer. When I was going through my MDiv, I used to be a personal fitness trainer. And so I would work people out for an hour uh, or multiple hours a week. Um, I used to train uh, probably 15 to 20 clinic clients a week, um, which equated to around 40 hours total in a week. And uh, every time somebody would come in, um, it was the same thing, right? They're too busy to eat right. They're too busy to sleep. They're too busy. um, And so they're stressed. 
Um, they like to go out on the weekends and, and, you know, have a good time and drink and eat and, and do things that were contra to what they're really expressing their fitness goals to be. And so I think part of the trick is that we have to get people to stop doing certain things in order to start doing others. That is just sort of the synchronon, like it has to happen, right? Um, we can't continue to uh, dine at the tables of demons and also take the Lord's Supper, right? Go to 1 Corinthians 10. It's not really what Paul is talking about there, but it's kind of a nice word picture, right? We don't get to do both. We don't get to grow in godliness while we continue to participate with the world. And so we've got to stop doing some of these things that are creating anxiety, that are creating stress, that are creating addictions. We have to get away from those. And, you know, obviously with addictions, there are certain things you can go and do and get help to stop doing those things. But at the end of the day, that's what has to happen. It's about replacement. We have to stop following these other ways. And these are really ways of the world that we have become accustomed to and created patterns in our life that are hindering our discipleship. We've got to stop those patterns and start new ones. That's the basic idea. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just about with anything, uh, and 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 that's um, it's just developing good habits and and better patterns than uh, to be, uh, and and that's these other cycles really into distractions, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I I think the the way I've started to think about it, and and that I think is a fairly helpful way to think about it, is that. The world and its systems are always trying to make us their disciples. Discipleship is just a relationship between a master and a pupil. And, and so the master then requires the pupil to do and be certain things in order to be in relationship and to be a true disciple of that master. We are to be disciples of Christ. And yet we have all of these other sort of minor masters that we are dealing with in our daily lives that are trying to get us to be dis their disciples. And we can't really, we can't really split, right? We can't be the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of all these other things. It's, it's sort of like, you know, when Jesus says you can't um, serve God and money, right? Well, you can't serve God and money because if you're serving God, the things that God is going to tell you to do, the way he's going to tell you to be are completely opposite of what money is going to tell you to do and be. And so that is, I think, a helpful way to think about it is that we're always being discipled by something. It just depends on which master we're going to end up serving. And so we've got to really focus in and be laser focused on Jesus. What is it that imitating Jesus is supposed to look like? How do we make him our master? And what does it mean to truly be his disciple? Well, that's about all the time we have today. We are starting to go through conversations that Dr. James Spencer outlined when we began Useful to God on radio and podcast. And with that, I am working on editing uh, the production for the digital audiobook version of Useful to God. James, we want to get people in an interactive study. And so as, as you were talking about being comfortable uh, and starting to get comfortable with each other, we want to get more comfortable with, with the people that listen, coming up with a with at least an eight-week course and maybe more, and kind of akin to what you're doing with Go Dark, Shine Bright. So let's talk a little bit about that, because that's coming up fast. Yeah, May 1st, we start our uh, third Go Dark, Shine Bright campaign. 
This year, we're asking people to take a five-day five media fast to set aside any media that they feel is hindering their discipleship. We used to just do social media. Social media could certainly be a part of it this year as well. But uh, for me, for instance, I'm uh, I'm not really on social media that much. And so I'm going to be taking a break from television. And so uh, that is that is media that is probably hindering my discipleship. So I'm going to be taking a five-day break from TV. And that includes all my fun streaming services. And then after the five-day fast, we're encouraging people to um, talk for five days with their social networks, virtual and in real life, about the experience they had across those five days, how God met them as they set these things aside, and to really share the gospel with their community. So where can people go to get more information? Good question. I should let people know that. They can go to godarkshinebright.org. It's godarkshinebright.org. All they do is put in their email and they can download a guide that will give them all the information they need to do the uh, the media fast. Well, I'm Richard Beatty, and for Dr. James Spencer, have a great and useful week. Before we go, here's the latest edition of Becoming Useful to God. 